0: My children didn't even know it. That's kind of what hurt my, hurt my heart. The Fitzgerald was launched from River Rouge. We have several folks who have a connection to that. Vicky Thompson was there actually the day that it was launched. And Eric's uh, grandfather had a part uh, in the building of it as well in 1958. It was the biggest ship of the Great Lakes. If you were to take the Renaissance building in downtown Detroit, you know, the, the tall center one in the middle. If you were to take it and lay it down in the Detroit River, take it from this and do this, and you were to pull the Edmund Fitzgerald right up alongside of it, the Edmund Fitzgerald would be almost a foot longer than the Renaissance building. This thing was huge. It was massive. It would hold fully loaded over 26,000 tons in her three cargo holes with their 21 latches. It was amazing. She was a luxurious ship for her time. I, I mean she had plush pile carpeting, she had drapes over the portholes, tiled restrooms, leather seats, and two guest staterooms. Yes, it did carry passengers from point A to point B. This was like the biggest, baddest ship on the Great Lakes at that time. Nobody went faster, nobody could carry more, and nobody had the state-of-the-art stuff. Like the Edmund Fitzgerald. On November the 9th, she left Lake Superior, Wisconsin, or she left Superior, Wisconsin, and she was captained by Ernest M. McSorley. She had 26,116 tons of iron ore pellets about the size of a marble in her hull. She was on her way to Sug Island in Detroit, en route to the steel mills there. As she left, the Fitz was joined by the Arthur M. Anderson. When the Wildcats and I went up to uh, the UP this past summer, uh, Perry Wilson and I were standing in the lighthouse and the guide said, look, that's the Arthur M. Anderson. And we took pictures of it. And that was the ship that followed the Edmund Fitzgerald. And by the time that they had hit the point where it was too far to turn back, One of those northeastern storms blew across the lake. Matter of fact, they probably say, calculated to be the second worst storm in Great Lake history. It, It was an hurricane-force storm with winds at hurricane strength and gusting well over hurricane. The rain turned to ice and then it turned to snow. Waves would crest at 35 feet. I have no desire to do that. Matter of fact, Arthur M. Anderson, Captain Cooper, would say that there was this probably a, a big kind of what we would call now a rogue wave that came over the, bow, the, the railing of his boat, and he had 12 feet of water on top of his deck at one time. This was a storm of a lifetime. And at about 7.10 that night, 15, 17 miles from Whitefish Bay up in the U.P., the Fitzgerald reported having some difficulty and under a bit of distress. The railings were, were down and she had two belch pumpings blowing out water as hard as they could. And that was the last time anyone heard from the Edmund Fitzgerald. The ice and the storm and the winds and the wave blinded Cooper and, and the Anderson crew from seeing anything else. And, and the radar just lost the blip of the Fitzgerald. An amazing thing, with all our technology and with all our study of stuff that we do today, we still don't know what caused the Edmund Fitzgerald to sink. Some people think that it was waves that lifted both ends of the ship up and the middle broke because what we do know is that it snapped in two. And it fell 513 feet to the floor of Lake Superior. Some people think that, it, that when it went through six fathoms shoal, that it grounded on, on big, huge rocks and, and either caused severe stress fracture in the metal or put some kind of a, a hole in its outer shell. We don't know. Previous structural damage may have caused the sh- sinking along with the pounding in the hurricane. Force winds, And this is a picture of the Jordan Cooper. And you can see, I mean, this is like real. The next photo will show you that, you know, the wave lifted it up. And then the next photo shows that it snapped. Now, I cannot comprehend metal snapping like that. It just blows my mind. To, to you know, I can't even cut tin with tin snips, you know, let alone this big metal megaplex thing just being ripped in two by waves. Some people say it was huge waves, like the rogue waves that, that pushed it up and instead of snapping it in the, in the ends and it sunk down, but it raised it up in the middle and just that, We don't know what caused the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. All we know is that today in Detroit Mariner Church the bell will ring 29 times for each man who lost his life on the Edmund Fitzgerald. What we do know is that the Edmund Fitzgerald broke in two, and she went down quickly, and she's shipwrecked. No one really knows what happens to a believer that makes shipwreck of faith. Oh, I can give you lots of theories, and I can get you lots of examples, but in the end, nobody really knows except that person and God in heaven. Whether it's a storm, whether it's stress, whether it's a steering issue, following the wrong thing, following the wrong course. No one really knows what happens. What we do know is that when a person has made shipwreck of their faith, they break up and they go down quickly. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter while under house arrest in Rome to a young leader, church leader named Timothy... Paul was acquainted with sailing. In fact, the Bible tells us in the book of 1 Corinthians that he was shipwrecked three times. Now, if I'm some of his followers, I'm thinking, I'll take the donkey, Paul, and you go by boat, you know. But three times. He would often use nautical terminology to describe a spiritual condition, and that's exactly what he does in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Because Paul was under house arrest, he asked Timothy to go to Ephesus. Ephesus was a worldly wicked city. Oh my goodness. You think that that explicit and immoral, sexually immoral stuff is present and decadent in our society? Man, it was just as rampant as it was, or it's just as rampant in Ephesus as it is in our day. It was this sin laden city. And some of the attitudes of the city had crept into the church. Matter of fact, there were two men who had kind of taken the lead on this thing, and they were teaching that the salvation is not in Christ alone and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is already, or the resurrection of the believers in Jesus Christ has already happened. So therefore we don't have to live this way because Christ isn't coming because he's already come. So don't waste your time living right. Do whatever you want to do. By the way, people are still coming up with any excuse to say, hey, listen, Jesus isn't coming back. You can live any way you want to. Do what you want to do. It doesn't change the fact that he is coming back. So he sent them on ahead. Matter of fact, if you were to look at verses 3 and 4, you would find that it says this, I urge you. When I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. He wants them, Timothy, and he wants that church to understand in Ephesus that in no uncertain terms, salvation is by faith through Christ and Christ alone. He's not making something up here. It's, it is by faith through Christ and Christ alone. Now, let me issue a couple of disclaimers. If you come to this church thinking this church is going to get you into heaven, you have misunderstood what we believe and what we preach here. When I was a young pastor, I've told this story before, But when I was a young pastor, I went and made a hospital visit and I, I talked to this one lady and she said, are you one of those narrow-minded preachers who think your group's the only group going to heaven? I said, no, ma'am, I'm more narrow-minded than that. I don't think all my group's going. Listen, Kirby Church is not the way to heaven. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. So just because you got your name on some form or book or computer thing, it church doesn't mean you are going to heaven. Did you see verse 4? Which is by faith. You make it to heaven, it is because you have accepted the fact that you are a sinner. And you realize that Jesus Christ is God's son, that he is who he says he is, the savior of the world, that he died on the cross for your sins and my sins, and just as we sung about today, on the third day, he rose again victorious over death, hell, and the grave, and that is where you put your faith, not in this church, but in Jesus Christ. In fact, the Bible, you want another nautical term, the Bible calls him the captain of our salvation. And so, what Paul had done is he said, Timothy, you're going to have to go straighten out this mess. Look at verses 18 and following. He said, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction. By the way, the word give is an interesting word there, it means to entrust with. Because you value what you have you do not take careless thought of who you give it to. For example, on your wedding day, when you have the wedding rings, used to people trusted a four-year-old to walk down the aisle with the wedding ring. I encourage an adult to hang on to that thing. And even adults lose it from time to time. He says, listen, I trust you, and I trust you with what I'm trusting you with. I give you this instruction, keeping with the prophecies once made about you that God would use him, so that by following them, you may fight a good fight. Man, holding to the faith and good conscience, some have rejected these so they have shipwrecked their faith. Among them are... Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme, let's kind of unpackage that just a little bit. Look at verse 18. He says, "Listen, I want you to fight a good fight of faith." That's an interesting word there because he's telling Timothy that, "Listen, this is not this is not you know the cruise on the good ship Lollipop. This is not a Disney cruise." This is a violent, war-like effort. The idea of fighting in the Greek language there is that, Timothy, you've got to go back and reclaim some ground. It means to expand the camp. You've got to go take ground or reclaim ground that was lost because of these two guys named Hyamaeus and Alexander. And so you got to go in with the attitude that right is right, wrong is wrong, and people, we're going to stand on truth. Now, I don't know if you've caught on to this yet, but we are in a fight. We are called to expand the camp, the kingdom of God. We are called to take the next hill spiritually. We are called to be light in a world that's dark. We are called to make a difference, and you can't do that on a Disney cruise. And now I'm all for Disney cruises, and if you want to send me on one next week, I will gladly go. What I'm saying is that some people want the church to be like a Disney cruise, we want it to have a little entertainment. We wanted to have a little sunshine. We wanted to have a little, you know, good meal. We wanted to have stuff that makes us happy. And if you were to look at the the imagery of the church in the New Testament, it's more like a battleship than it is a cruise ship. That we're called to come to this place to honor our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to get our marching orders, and not to sit back and say, oh, well, what will be will be, but to take the next hill. Because your friends and your children and my friends and my children, listen, if they don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior, the eternity's not good. And I believe, and I still believe this as passionately as I did when I was a kid preacher not knowing nothing from nothing. I still believe the local church is the hope of the world. Because it is the message, or it is the ministry through which Jesus Christ works to impact this world with the gospel. But we can't say it's a cruise ship, Uh -uh, it's a battleship. He says, Timothy, you're going to fight. I'm telling you, it's going to be a good fight, it's going to be a hard fight. But the implication in the verbiage is that, Timothy, you're going to win the fight. Just want to remind us I've read the back of the book, we win. Look at verse 19. Verse 19 just kind of keeps digging in a little deeper. Paul says, "Paul says there's holding on to faith and good conscience. The term faith can either be personal faith in Christ or the faith, you know. Trinitarian position, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, salvation by faith in Christ alone. So it can be kind of doctrinal things. I kind of think it just implies both. I think it's one of those collection phrases where it's talking about personal faith and your doctrinal faith. And he's saying, listen, hold on to the faith. Now, by the way, the word hold on is to cling to. Remember when our kids were little and they'd hang on to that leg right there. And we'd do this say, ah, go play with your cousins. Ah, go outside and play. And you'd drag out young and all over the house. Is he clinging to? You want to know a good word picture of clinging? Suppose you're on a boat, and that boat is going down, and you see one life preserver. I guarantee you, with every ounce of your being, you're going to swim swim to it, and you're going to cling to it. Amen? You're going to hang on to that baby. With everything you've got, that's the idea. He says you hold on to Jesus Christ with everything you got. You know, we sing this song around here sometimes, oh no, I'll never let go through the calm and through the storm. Oh no, I'll never let go of him. And then he never lets go of us. It's that clinging idea. You hold on to faith, and then you hold on to a good conscience. A good conscience. I'm amazed how many people think like this is Jiminy Cricket kind of on your, on your thing. By the way, this is not the Holy Spirit. This is not Jiminy Cricket. This is just your basic knowledge of right and wrong. This is just that you and I have certain morals and certain values because we were raised in a certain culture. And the cult, we have the, the values of the culture. Sometimes they may be skewed, but we do have the values of the culture. And he says, even your conscience will address the rightness or the wrongness of the value of the culture. How you treat people. If you're honest, hypocrisy. This stain of conscience. Ray Stedman shed some light on this for us. He said, I find a great deal of misunderstanding, even among Christians, on what the conscience is. Many feel that the conscience is given to teach us the difference between right and wrong, but nothing, nothing could be further from the truth. No conscience is given to us rather to resist any deviation from the truth, from right and wrong that we know. Isn't that incredible? So not only do you have the Holy Spirit, but you have your own internal kind of conscience. I understand some of our conscience isn't very much good, but he's saying it's there. He said, "I want you to hold on to that faith. I don't want you to hold on to that good conscience where you know what's right and you know what's wrong. By the way, how can you hold on to a good conscience? I want you to listen to this. How can you hold on to a good conscience? Man, you treasure your faith in Christ more than anything else. You cling to it, and you are absolutely convinced that you're not going to let anything come between you and Jesus Christ. Man, you've got a death grip, as it were. You're a drowning man and the the boat's going down and Jesus throws you out a life preserver through his grace and you hang on to that with all that you have. You say, well, preacher, I don't understand all this stuff in the Bible. I don't understand it either. I'll tell you what I do know. I know that Jesus loves me and when everything else falls away and when I can't explain much more than that, I'm going to cling to that. Hang on. You know, the big sin of our day for Kirby Free Will Baptist Church, I'm not talking about any other church, I'm talking about as your pastor to you from from my heart, is this sin of spiritual boredom. The sin of spiritual boredom. Because we don't read our Bibles, because we don't pray, because we don't serve quietly and simply in the name of Jesus. Because worship is more about, okay, come and if you like the song, I might sing with you. Instead of singing to him. Church is just kind of, I'm afraid sometimes it becomes almost a one-upmanship. What can we do better this Sunday than we did last Sunday? Obviously we want to have better musical quality and and we certainly don't want, we want to be able to use the restrooms like we weren't able to do last Sunday, amen? I mean, obviously there's stage you want to do better. If you're a teacher, you want to teach better. If if, If you serve on a greeting team or an usher team, whatever, you want to be able to do that better. But I'm telling you, somewhere in Mike Trimble's personal walk, with a holy God and His precious Son, Jesus Christ, I have got to come to the place where Jesus Christ and Christ alone is enough. That if there were no lights and if there were no music and if there was no song, Jesus Christ would still be enough. If there were no padded chairs and no carpet on the, on the floor, Jesus Christ would still be be enough. If this building wasn't here and you weren't here and everything was stripped away, that wouldn't cause my faith to shipwreck because I'm clinging to Jesus. And when you cling to Jesus, he is more than enough. But we get bored. So we don't read our Bible and we become spiritually mature. We don't grow deeper and we become more spiritually mature. And what happens is we get farther and farther. We we get less driven by the spirit and we get more pushed by the currents of the culture around us. And so that the culture takes us this way and, and Jesus Christ wants to propel us this way and, and because we're going that way and he's going this way, the, holy, the voice of God gets more distant and more distant and more distant. And then the storms come and the winds blow. And you wonder where the voice of God is in the midst of the storm. It's always been. Or it is where it's always been. And that's on the throne. So you hang on to Jesus. And you just cling to him with everything you got. You pour your life into Christ. And you allow Christ to pour his life into you. You make your life accountable to this book. And that was ultimately the sin. Look at verse 20. Here, here was the here was a sin. among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What he's basically saying here is, listen. And you could go to chapter two and he kind of expounds on what they were doing. But again, that the that the resurrection of Christ has already come, so you don't have to live by this book anymore. Do your own thing. I'm telling you, there is preachers and churches and singers and everybody out there who's saying the same thing as Alexander and Hymeneus. You can live your own way, do your own thing. There's no consequences to sin. And that is absolutely not true. Matter of fact, you look at the verse and you see the consequences of that sin, and it's pretty severe. I handed them over to Satan. Now, I don't understand all that that means. I don't necessarily think this is talking about blasphemy and the Holy Ghost. And I don't even think that these verses talk about apostasy. I think there's other issues that you could address that issue better from. I'm just simply saying that probably this was a form of church discipline where under, and while you're in the church and under the authority of the local pastor and and, and the governess of the church is that you have God's protection over you. But when you step out from under the authority of God's word and out from under the authority of the shepherd of the sheep, out from under the authority of Jesus Christ, then you have no protection. Grace is not extended. And you are wide open to the abuse and misuse of Satan. Now, I know in our culture, we've got Satan pictured as this great friend of ours, and I'm telling you, he is not. The Bible says he's a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The Bible calls him a thief that comes only but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. It's under the provision of God's word that you find grace and shelter in time of storm. But then what Paul is saying, all right, we're going to take these two brothers, and we're going to set them outside so they can be taught. Not to blaspheme, taught not to harm the reputation of Jesus Christ in heaven, because he is crucified, He did, was buried, He did rise again, He's ascended back to heaven, and on his timetable, not anybody else's, on his timetable, he will come again. And until that day we're to live for him, cling to him, hang on to everything, you know, like he's our life preserver and we're to live for him until he comes. You know, the problem with shipwrecks, the problem with saying I can do whatever I want to do and the scripture really doesn't have anything on me is that people will look at you and because you come to church, you're an expert. Now, you and I know that you're not necessarily an expert. You may be, but because you come to church, they perceive you as an expert. So what you do and what you believe then becomes the accepted thing. And because you do it, they can do it. And because you believe it, they can believe it. That's what was going on in the church at Ephesus. Hymenaeus and Alexandra believed it. And so, because they believed it, it's okay for me to believe it. Because they did this, it's okay for me to do that. Listen, you and I have no right to deviate from the authority of this book. Shipwreck. By the way, can we go back to verse 19? And do you see it right there? And they have made shipwreck of their faith. And the problem with the Hymenaeus and the Alexandrias at the church of Ephesus is they were taking others down with them. Hymenaeus taught the doctrine. Alexander evidently was a mean-spirited old, I was gonna say booger, but I guess I can go ahead and say booger anyway. Can I tell you something? Shipwrecks don't just happen. Spiritual shipwrecks don't just happen. Let me tell you how they happen. You know the truth of God's word, and yet there is this decision to act contrary to God's word. And so when you act contrary to God's word, you probably maybe will enjoy the sin so now you will either repent and give up something that you enjoy or you'll repent and bring your life back into accordance with god's word here's what most people do this is what the hymenaeuses and the alexanders did Instead of conforming their life to God's word, they simply said, you know what? The Bible really doesn't mean that anymore. Hey, you don't have to worry about sexual purity. Hymeneus would teach because Jesus has already come back. There's no future resurrection. We're just, just kind of left here out on our own. Do what you want to do. You see, if you're going to make shipwreck of faith, almost always you'll change your behavior and then you'll change your belief to accommodate your behavior. That's why Paul told Timothy to teach it and live it and model it before the church at Ephesus. Cling to faith that is in Christ alone. Will you bow your heads and would you close your eyes for just a minute? This is a message straight to the church. Man, it's it, it's about us, and it's about us living right. It, it, it's about us and Christ alone and our faith. It, it's about us and being totally sold out to Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning, and man, you're taking on water. If you're here this morning, and you're kind of getting too close to the craggy shores, man, I'm telling you, it is Christ in Christ alone. How's your relationship with Jesus Christ? Church. Church. Are you taking on water? Are you in a storm? Then you cling to Jesus. There's sin to confess, man, you nail it and you confess it so that you're not a Hymenaeus and an Alexander, so you're not listed among those who've made shipwreck of faith. Father, I want to pray for all of us. I want to pray for me don't I don't want to misuse God's Word.